Acts chapter 11, and <clears throat> so as I mentioned earlier, we'll piggyback on a principle that Michael had shared with you a couple of weeks ago pertaining to chapter 10, and of course bleeding into chapter 11. And what we're going to see here in the first half of chapter 11, in a sense, is a little bit of a recap of what occurred in chapter 10 with regards to God's revelation to Peter that the gospel and salvation is now made available to the Gentiles. And this is, in a sense, just going to kind of blow some of the Jewish believers' minds that God would make salvation for outsiders, if you will, those not traditionally considered God's chosen people. It's just going to blow their minds that this would be something of the Lord. And so Michael, if you recall, referred to a principle called paradigm shift. Does that sound familiar? And a paradigm shift or a paradigm is maybe a way of looking at circumstances through a particular lens or a filter. And one of the things that we saw in chapter 10 specifically was that Peter, much like his contemporaries of very Jewish descent and Jewish nature, understood and saw Gentiles as being unclean, unworthy of God's favor, and people whom they were to keep a distance from. That it was unlawful to associate with Gentiles. And I think Michael mentioned that God never really said it was unlawful, but he did. He did replace dietary restrictions on the Jews, and he did place fencing on Israel as it pertained to associating with the nations around them so that the Israelites wouldn't ultimately adopt and embrace those pagan practices. But we do have examples throughout the Old Testament where somebody who was not part of Israel, who was not Jewish by nature or Hebrew and wanted to be a part of God's kingdom was allowed to be a part of God's kingdom if they so desired. Think about Rahab. Right? She understood and saw what God had done and how he had been blessing the Israelites in their wandering. And she said, that's the real deal I want in. And so for any Gentile who said, I want to be a part of God's people, God welcomed and said, that is certainly permissible. And we have evidence and a fabric of that. But we have humanity that gets involved, right? We have tradition and heritage and culture. And by the time that we get to the first century and we're looking at these early Christians, these Jews were steeped in a practice whereby they had been convinced that the Gentiles were completely to be despised, to be considered unclean, unholy, completely unworthy of God's favor whatsoever. Don't have anything to do with them. They're dirty. And this might be a generational reference, but how many of us adults remember growing up and sometimes, well, guys, sometimes there were girls that had cooties. Remember that? <laughs> Rob says, yeah. Don't go near them. They have cooties. 
And so there had become essentially a law within the, the fabric of Jewish culture to not associate, to not eat, to not partake in activities with Gentiles because you could become unclean and defiled. And that was the paradigm through which Peter was viewing Gentiles or outsiders. And that was the paradigm with which God was going to completely sort of undo and show a truth to Peter and ultimately open up salvation in Jesus Christ for the entire world. And we know that this was part of God's plan from the beginning because Jesus promised to his disciples that they would take the gospel message first to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Some of you may have a paradigm in your own lives, a way of looking at a set of circumstances that maybe God has undone. Michael used an example a couple weeks ago about a traditional misconception that ulcers were the result of spicy foods and other things. And he revealed how over time that was disproven, but it took 10 years and that there was a strong resistance to that. I think about my own life. Uh, This is a very superficial example, but in the architectural world, I remember back in 1999 or 2000, somewhere around there, we had a couple of houses that we were doing for some couples simultaneously, and they had a... uh, uh, the same builder, same general contractor was going to do these, and they were going on the same street, and the street was in Bexley, a uh, neighborhood of probably 18 lots that we had done all the original homes. All the original homes had been done in the mid-'80s, true slate roof, true stone facades, okay? And this builder was proposing that we use fake stone, or today we call it cultured stone, and simulated slate roofs. And, of course, we said, no, we will never be a part of that. That's ridiculous. We're purists. There's no way we're going to allow fake products to go on our homes. And this general contractor said, do you have any idea how much money we can save your clients by using cultured stone? And we said, but it looks fake. It doesn't look real. This was our paradigm through which we were viewing this new product. And so they said, well, you have to trust us. And we said, how about this? How about you go get a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood? You lay up cultured stone sample, and we'll put it up next to the walls of the existing houses that are, you know, 10 feet away from these new ones, and we'll figure out if it's going to work. And lo and behold, these contractors made these 4 by 8 panels, put this cultured stone product on there, and they did the joints just like you would do natural, real stone, and we stood back and we went, we have to admit, it looks pretty good, and it became an acceptable substitute in our eyes. And I use that example. It's a loose example. But for us, that was a paradigm shift. We had been convinced for decades to be purists and that a a fake product like cultured stone wouldn't match up to real stone. And we had to be put in our place that when a proper product was detailed properly, it was consistent. And so it was a paradigm shift for us. And we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go with the cultured stone. So Michael shared that Thomas Kuhn is the gentleman who proposed the idea of paradigm shifts. And he said that these paradigm shifts happen in four basic stages. We're going to walk you through that for just a second here, okay, Uh, before we get into our biblical text. The first stage that he said 
happens in a paradigm shift is that the there is the generally accepted paradigm. The generally accepted paradigm in our case, for first century Jews, was that these Gentiles were unclean, right? It included this view that fellowship was unlawful and that they were dirty and they could be cause a Jew to become unclean. Stage two, during a paradigm shift, is that the accepted paradigm is then challenged. And so what we saw a couple weeks ago in our text in chapter 10, this occurred when the angel visited Cornelius and Cornelius sends for Peter and Peter goes and visits the house of the Gentiles and partaking in an activity that would have essentially been forbidden and yet he wasn't made unclean, he wasn't defiled and so we have this accepted paradigm being challenge now, stage two. Stage three of a paradigm shift is the establishment of a new paradigm. This occurred when God revealed to Peter in a vision that Gentiles are not to be seen as unclean. Remember what God said to Peter? Don't call unclean what I have already called clean. That's the establishment of a new paradigm that God shared with Peter. Stage four, and this is what we're primarily going to focus on this morning, Kuhn calls the aftermath. And this is where the new paradigm is accepted as the dominant viewpoint. And for us, the aftermath for the Jews would include the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the Gentiles as confirmation of this new paradigm. And the Holy Spirit, we will see this morning, his pouring out onto these Gentile believers now establishes, validates this new paradigm. And the aftermath is that it is now accepted as the norm. Just like we accepted cultured stone as being acceptable, the new paradigm is that the Jews will say, okay, this must be the real deal. However, we will see for a moment this morning that before their acceptance there was a resistance. They did kind of challenge the norm. They, they did put up a little bit of a fight initially to this new paradigm that God was establishing. And that's what we're going to see. So Acts 11. This is going to break down into three sections, okay? First section is that, verses 1 through 3, the Jewish believers initially reject the new paradigm. That's going to be section 1. The Jewish believers initially reject the new paradigm, verses 1 through 3. Our second section, Peter defends the new paradigm, verses 4 through 17. Peter defends the new paradigm. And the last section is simply going to be verse 18. The Jewish believers embraced the new paradigm. The Jewish believers embraced the new paradigm. So let, let, let's look at verses 1 through 3 for a second here. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, look at that. Quite a challenge by those who were not with Peter 
and the other six that went with him. But we know that Peter embraced the reality of the Gentile salvation because of what we saw in chapter 10. Look with me in chapter 10 at verse 28 first. Peter said, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man like me, a Jew, to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Okay, so we see that that's part evidence that Peter has accepted what God is doing. Look at verse 34. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Okay, and then look at verse 47. Peter says, after God poured out his Holy Spirit on these Gentile believers in Cornelius' house, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? So we see that after these events, Peter himself is fully convinced. Now, if we look at verse 45, we can generally assume, we don't know for certain, but we can generally assume that those who were with Peter at this conversion, not the new Gentiles, but the the other Jewish apostles and brethren that accompanied Peter to Cornelius' house, probably also believed. Look at verse 45. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. So, you know, it it could have been that they were just amazed at what they saw, but let's, let's generally at least maybe assume that they were probably on board with Peter. That, yeah, God has made salvation in Christ Jesus available to Gentiles as well. We didn't think that this was possible, but based on what we've seen, this has to be something that God is doing. And if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 11, verse 2, it says that they took issue. Those who were back in Jerusalem, when they heard what had happened at Cornelius' house with these unclean people, it says they took issue with Peter. Now, this is in the NASB, a softer version, but it might be more accurately translated with a little bit stronger wording. The NIV and the ESV say they criticized Peter. Um, The ASV and King James say they contended with him. And the contemporary English version says that they were arguing with Peter. So we get the the idea here that they were putting up a pretty strong resistance to this new information that they had received about Gentiles. And then in verse 3, we see what their real issue was. And I've kind of alluded to this already. Their issue is twofold, right? In verse 3, they said, we can't believe that you went and spent time with unvaccinated people. Wait, wrong message. Their their objection in verse 3 is twofold. You went and associated with people who are unclean, And not only did you just associate with them and were you in their presence, but you ate with them also. 
So their real issue wasn't even, uh, you know, a heart issue or spiritual matter that would have been the heart of God, but their issue is one of tradition and long-practiced and established fabric of Jewish culture, which was don't be a part of them. Don't go near them. Don't go associate with them, and certainly don't eat with them. And that's what their issue was with Peter. And in some respects, we kind of understand. We're being very, very critical of them here this morning. But maybe we should extend a little bit of grace to them. Because this was the norm for them. And this is their little snow globe of a world that God is taking upside down and shaking for them. And they're doing their best to understand it. And they're devout believers and they're devout men of God. And so they're standing on a principle that had traditionally been a part and a way of their life. Think about Saul. When we first catch up with Saul in Acts, he was extremely zealous for God, but his zeal was directed at preserving Judaism, he says. My goal was to stomp out Christianity because I was trying to preserve God's kingdom. He felt like he was doing God's work and protecting God's namesake by squashing out this rebel way. These believers back in Jerusalem probably feel like they're doing God's work by addressing with Peter, what are you doing? Why were you eating and fellowshipping with these unclean people? You might remember in Corinthians when Paul is having to address believers who were exhibiting some behavior that was rooted in their Christian liberty with regards to the food that they were eating and the meat. Remember that they understood that they were neither made unclean or clean by the food that they put in their mouths, which is a truth. That's a very real principle. But what Paul was concerned about was that when you go to the public and the marketplace and you purchase some food publicly in the marketplace, there's a very good chance that that food may have been previously sacrificed to an idol, a pagan god or goddess, and then it's being sold to you for consumption. And while you know you can go and eat that and you're not made unclean by eating that, when you sit down next to an Orthodox Jew and you partake of that meat, you might be offending that Jew who is sitting across the table from you. And that Jew may have his or her world just completely rocked by you sitting there and eating that meat that may have been sacrificed to an idol. And Paul cautions them and says, look, be careful about that. Maybe that person has not had their paradigm shifted yet to understand that that food doesn't make him or her clean or unclean. And so Paul says, be careful with your Christian liberty when you behave like that. And so I said all that to say, we're being harsh on these Jewish believers back in Jerusalem for coming down on Peter and saying, why did you spend time with these Gentiles? But if we step back and exhibit a little bit of grace for a moment, we have to understand that we might find ourselves very, very similar situations today. And we need to 
be gentle with them, knowing the truth of God, but encouraging and walking and maybe locking arms with somebody who might not be there yet and helping them come along in this own little mini paradigm shift of their own, so to speak. And they weren't there with Peter. They weren't physically present with him. They didn't see and experience what he and those other six brethren saw. Now, our second section, verse 4. Verse 4 says that in response to this opposition, in response to them arguing and contending with him, it says that he began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence. I love this. Isn't this like classic Peter here for a minute? You know, think about the other instances, not all, but many of the other instances where we've seen Peter have to take a stand sort of publicly and respond to what was coming at him. Uh, Remember in chapter 1 when there was something like 120 gathered together and Peter says, we need to find a replacement for Judas? He, he took his stand among the brethren and spoke and said, this is what we need to do. And then at Pentecost, it says that he was gathered with the other apostles and sort of put forward, if you will, as their spokesman. And he had to give an explanation for what was supernaturally occurring at Pentecost when God was sending his Holy Spirit upon believers. And then remember when he was in the Sanhedrin court because they had been arrested. He and John had been arrested for healing a lame man, and he's in court, and he's giving this great defense about what God was doing through their hands and puts the Sanhedrin and the, and the, the Jewish officials in their place. Well, this is similar, but he does it very orderly and systematically. We don't see the harsh language, the harsh rhetoric that he may have had to use with others, like those Jewish leaders. We see him very orderly and systematically walk through with his brethren believers in Jerusalem. Let me tell you guys, this is what happened to us. And this is why I know this is of the Lord. And he's going to basically do it in four sections. His defense is going to have four parts to it. Part one of Peter's defense to his Jewish brethren believers in Jerusalem is going to be verses 5 through 10. And he's going to reveal that the revelation and vision that he has received is from God. He's going to tell them, this revelation that I received, this vision that I had, it is from God, and here's why. Look at verses 5 through 10. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And while I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures of the birds of the air. Watch in verse 7. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice, once again from heaven, answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. So we see here 
based on Peter's initial explanation and recounting of what happened, that this paradigm that God is beginning to shift didn't begin with Peter himself, but it originated with God. Peter is simply praying, and God gives him a vision, and he hears an audible voice from heaven, and God says, this is what I'm doing now. Don't call unclean what I have called. Part two of Peter's defense. He reveals that the command he has received is from the Holy Spirit. So he first tells us that this paradigm shift has not begun with man, but it has been initiated, originated with God. The second part he's going to say is this command that I've received to go to Cornelius' house, this is from the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 11 through 14. And behold, at that moment, after everything was drawn back up, three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, and having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings, meaning don't distinguish between them, don't pass judgment, don't look at them as being unholy, just go with them. And these six brethren, these other believers, also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So that we see here from Peter's, the second part of Peter's defense, is that this new paradigm that God is introducing also comes with an assignment for Peter. Okay? While God and God's Holy Spirit was speaking to Peter, go with these men, God was also simultaneously and concurrently working in the heart of a Gentile man, speaking to him and saying, send for Peter in Joppa, have him come to your house, because he's going to explain to you how you can be saved. This is the Holy Spirit working in this man's life over here, simultaneously working with Peter over here. And the Holy Spirit gives Peter an assignment and says, Part of this new paradigm that God is doing is going to include you going over there, being obedient, and you're going to explain to those guys who are unclean, quote unquote, how they can be saved. And so Peter explains in his second part of his defense, this is something God is doing because the command that I received is from the Holy Spirit. I didn't just, of my own volition, own will, say, oh, I'm going to go with these guys and just randomly go to this Gentile's house. No, the Holy Spirit directed him to do so. Okay, part three of Peter's defense is going to be verses 15 and 16. And Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. We'll come back to that. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What Luke tells us here, in the third part of Peter's defense, is that 
Peter is revealing to his audience, these people who were arguing with him, that the promise of the Holy Spirit has been fulfilled in these believers' lives just like Jesus promised. Part three of Peter's defense is that the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit has occurred just like Jesus said. That's what he's saying in verses 15 and 16. Remember what John told us? John, John, not John, but Jesus told us that John baptized with water, but I will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that something that pricked Peter's heart and his attention was that when he witnessed the Holy Spirit being poured out on those Gentile believers, one of the things that happened in that event was that they began to speak in other tongues. And Peter says, oh my goodness, that looks almost identical to our own personal conversion way back there in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And so one, one thing we might infer from this is that this event, this activity of speaking in tongues supernaturally and speaking in other known languages, okay, was maybe not the norm. We don't see that happening regularly in our fabric of acts. And many scholars, I don't know if we can say definitively, but many scholars believe that the time that has transpired between Pentecost and these Gentile believers in this event we're reading about right now in chapter 10 and 11 is maybe 7 to 10 years. So maybe something like 7 to 10 years has passed since Pentecost, and when God pours out his Holy Spirit on these Gentiles, he supernaturally empowers them to do something almost identical, if not identical, to what the believers in Jerusalem had done back at Pentecost. And Peter goes, ding! Oh my gosh, that looks like it did for us way back in the beginning. Maybe, I'm just, I'm just submitting this, this is personal, Maybe this hasn't been happening very often. Maybe it hadn't happened at all between these two events. And God uses it to prick Peter's heart and go, this is the real deal. You know it was real in your own life, and now when you're seeing it happen in these guys' lives, it's me doing it. And so, just as Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit to the apostles in chapter 2, he has promised the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, to these Gentile believers in chapter 10 and 11. And Peter witnessed it and says, how could I ever say that this is not authentic, that this is not of God? Now, part four of Peter's defense, last part, part four of Peter's defense, he's going to reveal that rejecting this new paradigm is equivalent to standing in God's way. Rejecting this new paradigm is to stand in God's way. And that's just going to be verse 17. If God therefore gave to them the gift, the same gift, as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who 
was I that I could stand in God's way. If God is doing the exact same thing in these Gentile believers' lives as he did for, and he's basically saying you and I to these contrarians in Jerusalem, who are we to say that this isn't God? Who are we to stand in God's way when we've physically witnessed with our own eyes the same exact thing? And so then our third section this morning. As a result of Peter's defense about this new paradigm that God is introducing, these Jewish believers in Jerusalem are going to embrace this new paradigm. Verse 18. And when they had heard this, or when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. You know, just like their original objection, their objection to Peter going to the Gentiles was twofold, right? One, you fellowship with them. Two, you ate with them. What's beautiful here is that their embracing of this new paradigm is also twofold. Their, or I should say their response is twofold. It says that, one, they quieted down. And a more, a more literal translation might be they became silent. They stopped arguing with Peter and contending with him aggressively. And the second part is that they glorified God by embracing the new paradigm. It says, when they heard this, one, they quieted down, and two, they glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also. You guys remember that, uh, was it Sherry O'Terry from SNL back in the day? She used to have that character that would say, simmer down now. Simmer down. Simmer down now. You know, that's what I think we see these believers doing. They are convicted as a result of Peter's very orderly and sequential defense and explanation as to what happened there in Cornelius' house. And their result is they've simmered down and God has pricked their hearts and they're going, yeah, how could we stand in the way? How could we also say this is not something the Lord is doing himself? And isn't this how the crowds also responded after Peter's sermon at Pentecost? Re- remember that they, some of them originally said, man, these, these people must be drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, they are not drunk as you suppose, but this is what God is doing. And Peter methodically walked them through the prophecies and revealed to them that this is promised by God, that he would send his Holy Spirit, and this is a fulfillment of everything that God had been doing in his redemptive plan up until that point. And we get to the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and the hearers said, oh my what should we do to be saved? 
What do we need to do now? Our hearts have been pricked, and we have heard this message. What do we need to do to be saved? And remember what Peter's response was? It was, repent of your sins and be baptized. First, turn from your wicked ways and no longer do that anymore, and now be baptized in the name of Jesus. And isn't it beautiful here? that what these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, the way in which they are glorifying God with their response is recognizing that the Gentiles' hearts have been pricked and convicted of repentance. Luke specifically records that, that the Gentiles have also received this repentance that leads to life. Not simply that they saw all the facts, that they witnessed all the circumstances or they heard a great presentation by Peter at Cornelius' house, but that the God's Holy Spirit had pricked their hearts and caused them to repent, to recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior, just like you and I, that we are utterly depraved outside of a Messiah. We are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that they have a need for a savior. And they have accepted me, Jesus says, as Lord and Savior. This is what happened to these Gentiles. Now, we began looking at this passage this morning, you know, through a process of a paradigm shift. It's not a biblical concept per se but I think we can reasonably use it as an illustration for what happened here, that these Jewish believers had been viewing Gentiles through a particular lens, and God said, I no longer want you looking at them this way, and I'm going to show you that my salvation is available for all of my creation, for all who shall come to me, who shall understand their need for a Savior, who will repent of their wicked ways and embrace me. So today, maybe maybe there isn't this universal paradigm shift and global paradigm shift for the body of Christ that God is doing. But maybe there are some mini paradigm shifts in our own lives. You know, personally, that any one of us here this morning may have recently gone through or may be going through something where God has shown you something new and maybe there's a tension in your heart. Maybe you're kind of wrestling and going, man, I, I was certain that, that this was how God intended to work in my life, and now I'm realizing maybe not. Or I'm certain that this is a biblical truth, and maybe you've seen something in the Word of God recently, and he's revealed to you mm, what you were absolutely convinced. Maybe you weren't quite accurate on that, and maybe God is shifting a mini-paradigm in your own life causing you to view him through a different lens, a different filter. 
I don't know if I shared with you guys <clears throat> a few weeks ago that we had a lady come back to our building who originally we had met maybe 12 or 13 years ago as part of our homeless ministry. And she came back to ask Jean and I to attend her graduation ceremony for her GED. And she had a graduation ceremony with the Academy of Urban Scholars. And it was really important to her that we go there and attend there uh, because she didn't have too many other people that were there on her behalf. And we were excited. We said we would love to. It was an honor, and we did that. She happened to pop back in uh, on Thursday to the office and chatted with me. And she said, I really need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And she said, you know, I got married 10 years ago. I said, oh, did you? I didn't know. She said, yeah. And she said, up until about three or four years ago, it was an okay marriage. But since then, it's been living hell, she said. And she said, not much physical abuse, but some verbal abuse and a lot of other trying conditions and dynamics in this relationship. And they haven't been living under the same roof for a year or two now. And she said, I really want to talk to you about divorce. I said, okay. And she proceeded to explain and share that she wanted me to kind of pray with her that God would facilitate a divorce for her. And I had to say to her, I said, I can't pray for that. And I saw her countenance kind of change for a moment. And I said, but I'm not going to leave it there. Let me, let me explain why to you. And I said, divorce is no greater a sin than anything else that any one of us do ever. And God will forgive that sin over and over and over again. God's grace is so big. He can do that. I said, but for me to ask the Lord to do something that is antithetical to his character according to his word, I said, we can't ask him to do that. And I said, how about if we pray that God would in some way supernaturally relieve you of the circumstances that you're in? And we don't know how he might choose to do that. And I said, one thing we do know for certain that, if anything, God would be most glorified by your husband basically being taken by God, shaken to his wit's end so that he might come to a saving relationship in Christ Jesus and turn from his wicked ways. Isn't that what we could pray for first and foremost, number one, and then also pray that his position, his view of you, his treatment of you, everything, would change in a way that honors and glorifies God. I said, we don't know if that's part of God's plan, but we know that that's something that we can pray for and be in the will of God as we pray, because that would bring glory to him. I said, so I'm okay with praying for you and on your behalf and petitioning to the Lord that he would change this situation that you find yourself in. I'm okay with that. And that's what we need to pray for. And as I'm sharing this with her, she begins to tear up and she begins to cry. And I knew what she was wrestling with. Her heart had been pricked by God's Holy Spirit because she was now being convicted that she knew she couldn't rightfully 
offer this prayer up to the Lord anymore. And I believe that part of her tears was the tension inside of this reality. I now understand this truth of God's word and this truth about God's character, but I'm not ready to be okay with it yet. I truly believe that her tears were, okay, I intellectually understand that I can't pray for this, but I still kind of want this in the flesh. I would still really like to get out of this situation through this legal means. And so I share that because many of us at times might find ourselves in a paradigm shift and the first part of that for us when God introduces the new paradigm is to have a resistance to it initially. And intellectually, we might be there, but maybe in our hearts and in our practices, we might not be there quite yet. We even see evidence of that in Peter and many of the other believers' lives. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 that he had to address old behaviors of Peter and others when they were choosing to alienate the Gentile believers and sit and eat only with fellow Jewish believers. So even this example that we see of this paradigm shift, there are old habits and old ways that still clung to Peter and the others later on. Praise be to God that he loves us so much he accepts us exactly the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. And if you're going through a paradigm shift right now in your life, it's because God loves you too much to let you stay with this, we'll call it flawed lens, and he wants to give you that new lens that reflects his character and what he's doing, maybe in your own personal life, and a, a new understanding and it might come with a little bit of resistance at first, but he hangs there with us until we make it. Amen? Father, <clears throat> thank you this morning for this text. Thank you for the example that we see of Peter, first and foremost, recognizing by your divine intervention, something that you had planned from the beginning. Lord, you have always welcomed all. You have always made salvation in you available to everyone who would believe. But in our humanity, we had to catch up. And so, Father, we thank you for supernaturally intervening in a way that only you could in Peter's heart and at the same time working in Cornelius' heart and bringing those two together, which is nothing that men or man could orchestrate of our own volition, but only something that you could do and originates with you. And through that, you caused Peter and the six who were with them, and then ultimately those believers back in Jerusalem who heard about this, to understand that this gospel message, this salvation that is found in only Christ Jesus, is available for all who will turn from their wicked ways and be baptized 
and accept you as Lord and Savior. Jesus, thank you for paying that price on the cross for us. Thank you for causing our hearts to recognize that we are in need of a Savior and that we want to repent of our wicked ways and have a personal relationship with you. We are eternally grateful. We thank you for this text this morning, and we lift all of this up in the precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Will you all stand with us and we'll